this is the Tempter Podcast, where we discuss embedded Linux, IoT development, and anything else we might find interesting. Your hosts are Kem Raj and Cliff Brake. Today we're going dis- to we're going to dive into the, the details of the Yo distribution a little bit and kind of talk about some features, how we use them, and and how they help us. And um, the first place to start is is Meta. Meta Yo, this is this is a layer in the Yo distribution that defines the distribution itself. And Kim, you do most of the the maintenance of Meta Yo, so maybe you could explain kind of what you do there and what you think the important pieces are. And mm-hmm. yeah, so I think um, um, in our last episode we talked about uh, you know the overall Yo um, designs, why we came to Yo and. And so I think uh, this is a good uh, episode. I'm really uh, happy that we covered that. And I'm sure that, uh, you know, this um, episode will be a continuation of uh, more on Yo Distro. So um, as we know, uh, in Yakto philosophy, um, uh, or to say open embedded philosophy, we have this concept of layers. And uh, when you have a distribution, you always need a distribution layer. And what does a distribution layer consist of is primarily policies for distribution. And to cite some examples would be uh, what kind of packaging you would want to use for your feeds, where your feeds are hosted. So you you might want to encode uh, the uh, the URLs and um, what kind of init systems you want to use perhaps. And, um, And certain package choices uh, or preferred providers, so to speak. So in many cases, there are many uh, competing packages which provide same functionality. For example, package config. So there's a PKG conf, which is a C implementation, and then there is a good old PKG config. So you can make those choices, which are then going to be distro-wide for you. And then, of course, you know you will have other settings like uh, whether you want to use which C library you want to use or what different um, you know output image formats you want to use. So so Meta Yo is basically our distro layer for Yo distro. What we do in Meta Yo, in fact, is we define all of these what we talked about in a usable form, which basically also gives a profile uh, for us so we can use in different scenarios. So I think we'll go over into more details about how the platform and how the Yo profile is, is uh, constructed. And um, what you will see is we have definitely uh, other portions of package configurations that makes it easy. For example, you know, we want to enable certain features for Yo distro specifically. Um, that could be that um, we have certain distro features that are not included in the uh, defaults that you get from core. And uh, these are things, you know, like um, enabling testing or enabling uh, profiling and uh, other things that um, are available but uh, are optional. And we also define a very strict QA policy. So we try to use all the uh, packaging QA warnings we get from the build system and we turn them into warnings. 
uh, warnings into errors. And if you were to build, say, you know, simple OE core based node distro, then you know those will be reported as warnings. But in your distro, they are treated as errors. So we want to make sure that you know we have a good check at you know all those packaging issues that we might encounter. So so I think. Um, uh, the the other portions that uh, that are not in there uh, are actually captured into uh, some of our top level configuration metadata specifically site.conf and uh, we also provide a sample for you know local.conf that uh, a user can copy and use as local.conf you know once they want to add any tweaks on top of what the distro provides mhm yeah, the the Yoke profile variable is is very interesting to me because one one thing with with Yocto or Open Embedded, you know, to select between glibc or Muscle libc, you know, it's it's um it's it's a fairly straightforward thing, but it typically involves you know searching through the documentation and trying to locate three or four variables that need to be set. Mm-hmm. Right. So I think. Uh, so far, what you have seen generally is that you know there is one distro, and then you would define you know libc and and init systems and graphic systems, and then you will live with that. But then uh, the use cases that I was encountering were on kind of different spectrums, and one of them was you know working with you on uh, one of the IoT projects where we said you know it's a very small edge gateway doesn't have any graphics, doesn't need to be um, running, you know, a, a heavy software stack. Um, then I think we had like, you know, normal like Raspberry Pi, you know, Qt5 based systems where, you know, performance and, and the resources on the device were not an issue. And mm-hmm. most of the time what I was doing was I was using Yo as my distribution and then all these settings that I would need to do, selecting you know various uh, packages or various uh, policies, would go into you know my local.conf or site.conf or something, and they will be subsumed there. So it started kind of uh, becoming clear to me that it would be much better for us to define these variables and create profiles. Number one, it gives a clear idea to somebody who is trying to build a product, right? So in many cases, they might start with your distro with a open end, and then they will they will not have that thought out earlier. Should it run X11? Should it run VLAN? Should it run both? Or, you know, should it use system D? Or should it not use system D? We should use, you know, Sys5 in it? Or, you know, should we, what's our footprint? And... It kind of makes you think uh, in those directions early on when you're setting up your project. And um, that's a good design choice at the very beginning um, because mm-hmm. I think uh, switching later on is a little expensive because you have put in efforts in making you know, your system work with you know, the other libc or you know, other graphic system and then you make this change, it's disruptive and you might have to undo certain things you have done and pile up more work to support you know your choice that you're making now so so that was uh, the thought behind it is that hey you could choose a profile and then it will set you up with that profile and you know developers in the embedded space they are fairly clear about you know some of these requirements if 
they are presented with a choice and they often make a good choice at the beginning. And I think um, that has been the case for me is that where, you know, I know that if I'm making a smaller footprint access point, then, you know, we can use busy box, we can use muscle, we can use uh, no graphics, right? So uh, I'll go for that. But um, but then all those profile is a single variable, right? And once you select that, all those choices are made for you. And, and you know, you can start from a very uh, advanced configuration to add tweaks, obviously, that you might need. But um, basic system is already set up for you. Sure. Yeah, it, it's um, for those who don't spend a lot of time maintaining open embedded, we don't even really know what the options are. So it, it's kind of nice to have a clear set of options up front where we can we can kind of see, you know, what are these options, you know, between the libc's and the init systems and the graphics, and then, you know, research it and, and make a good choice up front. And, mm-hmm. and having those as, as easy available switches is nice. Mm-hmm. And one other thing I should note is, you know, this is simply using the existing uh, BitBake comp files mechanism to do all this so there's no magic there's no mm-hmm. scripts running it's just very simple uh, bit bake configuration include files mm-hmm. um, in the con in the distro conf directory that that configure all this it, it's a nice level of automation and also it's it keeps it simple which is one of our central philosophies with all this is we want to we, we don't want to add any anything magic or hard, but yet we want to kind of set some defaults and makes mm-hmm. makes make things easier to use. That's right. Yeah, and I think we're right now we have and we have basically all the choices for you know the combinations of init system and the library, the C library, the uh, the graphics or uh, that you want to use like whether X11 Wayland or just plain LFS. And I think that basically makes it um, so in core, we have like BusyBox in it and we have Sys5 in it, we have SystemD, you know, that's one set. And then we have for libc, glibc and muscle, that's another set. And then we have X11 and then we have Wayland and we have EGLFS. So um, that kind of combination makes up, you know, most of the things that you, you would require. I would say that one more than another, but you definitely have those choices that can make. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what, one other thing you've done, Kim, is, is uh, set up defaults that most people want. And, um, in, you know, again, if, if, these, if these defaults are set up correctly, you know, it can save a lot of time. You don't have to go digging through the, the Yocto mm-hmm. documentation. Very good, but it's also huge and, and takes a while to find stuff. But what what are some distribution defaults that you think are important, or do you think kind of add some icing on the cake, so to speak? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I think uh, I don't remember. A few days ago, I uh, came across this discussion on uh, IRC, where uh, someone, uh, relatively a, a new user, was um, uh, looking for you know how to set up, for example. Um, he had a Raspberry Pi, and then how could he? Um, basically, he was able to build everything right using um, the image that he wanted to create. It was a base image, which is relatively small, and he had it. I think a 32 GB card or something like that. And he says that, hey, you know, everything is okay, but it shows 80 percent 
desk full and I have 32 GB card in there. Images is only like less than 200 meg. And how can I make it expand? Uh, or, you know, how could I make it 32 GB right, usable, like a normal install that you'll have on a desktop? So um, there are several ways to go about it. Like you could create like a 32 GB image, right? And then you can flash it. And then, you know, you could do some other things at runtime, for example. And what we do is uh, we include uh, a package called, it's from Meta 96 boards called uh, 96 boards tools. And they have a service called file system resize. And this service basically runs on first boot and and then resizes your uh, root FS to the size of your SD card, for example. So we uh, add that, that package to our images. And as a result, what you see is that when you build a your simple image or any other, you know, your debug image and you flash it, then um, once you boot it, then it will automatically expand uh, for example, your Raspberry Pi SD card to you know the full size. So you know it avoids you that pain of figuring it out for yourself. For example, uh, mm-hmm. and especially if you're new uh, in this area, this is a big help for you because uh, most of the time you are not a system developer, right? And you are a a developer who is in the application space or in you know in a different part of the system. And these things really kind of come in your way. It is something that is an enabler for you rather than feature. So, so we thought that you know that would be a, a useful thing for an out of box experience uh, with the images that are generated with you for the users. Sure. Um, so um, yeah. So I think the, another one that comes to mind is how we use uh, BMap tool. So um, BMAP tools essentially, you know, is a bitmapper, speeds up uh, flashing your, you know, images into your cards. And if you were to DD a a 16 gig image, you know, it will take you forever. Um, But with BMAP tools, it kind of uh, speeds that up by um, not flashing the zeros into the card. So um, what you would see is that when you use uh, your install image utility, which is uh, you know part of our setup scripts, which we talked about in our first episode as well, then it will automatically use BMAP tools. And you know, on my desk here, I have a 32 GB card, and when I flash a 16 GB image, it's done in less than uh, two and a half minutes with a lot of content in there. And I have seen that if you have to flash 32 GB of uh, SD card over USB, uh, it's going to take you quite a bit depending upon, of course, you know, which class of SD card you have, but I don't have, uh, you know, the high-end one. So so this is really, really helpful when, you know, you are doing development. So mm-hmm. I think, uh, so these two are kind of like points I wanted to bring here, but uh, this is not an only limit. We have even more. Uh, for example, we uh, configure system D when you choose systemd-based uh, profile, for example, then we we enable systemd's uh, additional configs, package configs, to uh, ensure that systemd can start networking on your system mm-hmm. and name resolution. So um, one thing, for example, that you know, uh, certain cards or certain boards, rather, they have the MAC address is not static. So what would happen is Every time you flash a new image, you'll get a new IP address. And 
you know that's kind of annoying when you have some automation running on it and you know every time you flash a new image it gets a new ip address so so we handle that in system d where we don't want that to consider changing max for example and you know reuse the uh, ip on on these kind of boards so all those are little gems i would say that you would figure out but uh, you know it takes a while to figure them out but uh, we basically make sure that they are part of your distro's default configurations for system d for example so yeah so i think there is a list of them i think uh, we have some of them documented and more to come yeah yeah those things really really save time and it, it's really you know little tips and and things we figure out as as we're working with this and we try to capture that knowledge either in a distribution setting or in a in a function or a script in um uh, env setup Mm-hmm. like the bmap stuff so yeah that and as more users use this you know we we can learn from them and and capture even more ideas that will help people do embedded development more efficiently yeah you are right and uh, i think uh, you know many of these ideas were picked from discussions you know on the mailing lists or um, you know irc uh, question being asked so many times um there are like documentation out there and and i more than often people point them in the right direction right but i think um, you know having it for ourselves is also a very very useful thing so that's where your distro you know tries to include all those um smarts into the default configuration mm-hmm. and um and i think another thing that i wanted to uh, also talk about uh, is and is about um the images that we create and for example we have few standard images and these are sort of reference images and uh, you have like your simple image what that gives you is a is a basically a very simple bootable image with all the networking and everything uh, but then we have your debug image which basically uh, includes not only debugging tools and profiling tools but also certain utilities like that you might need to inspect you know your um um flash for example or other parts of the system so it's kind of a good uh, image for you know probing your hardware and then we have like yo qt5 images and you would see that we have yo qt5 valent image we have yo qt5 x11 image and we have yo qt5 eglfs image underneath if you don't consider because it's qt5 image so graphics becomes important so underneath you know it's basically all the content being similar you know if you have an aglfs based system uh, it will be able to run on that one or the wayland in similar fashion x11 and we package actually all the qt5 examples in there and we make sure that all the dependencies that you require to run those examples are part of the image as well mm-hmm. so what it gives you is that out of box you can if say you if you were to do a qt5 based project then you can build you know uh, one of the profiles you choose and then the image you will build for that profile and you are fairly set with all the qt and qt5 dependencies and then you can start working on your application before that if you want to play with some samples and things you know all those samples are included into the image i think that's another smart you will find and another thing is that if it is raspberry pi it's the same image if you were to build it for say odroid c2 the same thing you build the same mm-hmm. image you get same experience 
And if you were to build the same image for, say, Kimi X86, hey, go for it. It works there too. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, it's great to have that common experience. And, and these, these starting points cover most of, of the types of applications you might want to build. Uh, one thing we've been discussing recently is, is maybe having like a, um, a browser-based image because what's, what's becoming more common is applications written using web technologies and then run in a browser full screen on a LCD. So that's, that's starting to become a, an alternative to like a QT5 native app, but we plan to try to come up with some good def- defaults for that as well. That's right. Yeah, that's right. I think uh, uh, I'll just expand a little bit on uh, what you said. And so we've kind of like looking into um, something like a kiosk, which is running on a web technology, perhaps um, WebKit or or maybe Gecko Engine, and and have a way to have applications then integrate into that. So we'd like to create uh, something called uh, maybe a Yo browser image or something like that. I guess one other thing we, we've we've done with most of the systems we've implemented is is a software update mechanism and, and we haven't formalized this in in the yo distribution yet but we're working on a number of options the, the architecture we've typically used in the past is just to have a grip can look for update images on a usb disk or a data partition in flash or even over the network and reprogram bootloader, the kernel, or the main root FS, just depending on what's needed. So that that's proven to work very well, and we and very, it's been a very reliable. There's there's currently in in, in the Yo distribution there's a, an example for the IMX6 UL processor. We've also been looking at at some other technologies like SW Update and also OS Tree. So those are some some things we hope to integrate in the near future and and provide mm-hmm. some tooling and, and and defaults to use those. That's right. Yeah, updater I think is um, um, one of the key piece. I think is OTA nowadays. You know, all the connected devices, and I think it's discussed on and off. But there are many many choices out there, and you know, we definitely want to pick a choice for what the you know, needs we have. Or your distro as well, but we need we definitely need one. We don't want to leave it out, and because um, we've been doing updater in the past, as you mentioned, uh, you know there is a yo updater already. Uh, this is based on you know uh, scripts, uh, but it basically has been uh, used very many times. It's very mature, and it it works on a single uh, partition systems, and uh, you know there are various devices where you might not have a mechanism to flash it, um, flash the device directly, for example, and you might have to create production scenarios where the manufacturing would have to flash it from maybe installer-like uh, situations where you have um, your system on the uh, maybe an external uh, storage, something like SD card or USB, and then then that transfers, you know, the content right into the Flash or EMMC. And uh, it's fairly uh, useful in those scenarios we have had uh, in the past. And, you know, the IMX6 case you talked about is basically the same case as I described. And and I think what we also did is we kind of created this platform abstractions where, you know, you could add the information about what different uh, partitions you want to create and and 
and and what different formats you want to use, whether it should be XT4 or something different. So, so I think there are other uh, technologies out there. You know, SW Update is there, which does something similar, provides more hoops using Lua uh, to achieve something similar um, with a little bit of added complexity. And uh, OS3 is interesting. And I think um, my take on OS3 is that yeah, it's, it's a good technology for us to, uh, to implement a OTA mechanism. Uh, but I think we have to look into it a little bit more and see how we could deploy it into uh, a use, usable use case. So, so definitely, I think the other uh, thing that I really like about uh, is um, the old update mechanism using feeds. I don't think I like it from the deployment perspective. So what that means is that I wouldn't think that it's a good idea to uh, use those feeds for de- for deployments into your you know fleet, but it's a good one for development and for um, rapid prototyping. Mm-hmm. So um, um, so I think yeah. So what's uh, your take on uh, you know the data technologies, Cliff? Yeah, that, that's an interesting question because we see a a lot of options out there. You know, there's Mender mm-hmm. and a number of of organizations doing embedded Linux have come up with solutions for the update story and there's SaaS offerings for you know the cloud part so there's a lot of good options out there one thing i think a single image update and and many people may be surprised at that because they think you need two images to ping pong in between in case you know one gets corrupted you can fall back or you know so your (laughs) your device doesn't get bricked but what what we found is if you put the kernel with it and an itramfs and an updater in a boot partition that that will always be there, you know. If if the rootfs, you can either have it read write rootfs, and if it gets corrupted, you know, as long as your kernel will still boot and can read a USB disk, you can recover the, the system. And for many applications, that's more than sufficient. And the cases where we've actually seen rootfs corruption and and devices that won't boot are pretty rare. You know, you know, I can't even hardly think of them. And in cases where we've had updater brick the unit with with this single single image update, it has you know I, I can't even remember one. So it, it's been a remarkably reliable mechanism, and I and I think the the reason it's worked so well is it's so simple. You know, <laughs> it's anytime you have a dual image s- scenario, um, it touches every piece of your stack from the bootloader and the kernel, and then the programming you have to keep track of state as to which yeah. partition you're running from, which one to program, which one to boot from. Yeah. And when you fall back, you have to manage all that state and that state needs to be stored somewhere. And, yeah. you know, that scenario may be appropriate for some systems, you know, where you may not have access in the extremely rare case where, you know, it won't boot anymore or something. It's, it's a lot of work because it adds a lot of complexity yeah. And, yeah, and just right. because somebody has it running on a Raspberry Pi, you know, if you go and, and bring that to another platform, got to touch U-boot and the kernel and mm-hmm. and everything. So, yeah, that's something you definitely want to consider. And the, the simple approach, you know, it may be adequate. It may get you to market a lot faster. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I think I share sentiments there. And that comes from experience as well. I think we have done both, you know, <laughs> Yeah, we've done both. And <laughs> <laughs> so I think we have our learnings as well to share. And I think, uh, you know, it becomes so hard to manage state, as you rightly said, where, you know, it entangles with your data. 
and mm. um, one of the things that is that goes wrong is because you want to do flip flop because you want to quickly recover if something goes wrong and um, and the problem there you know more often happens is uh, you know you have databases or some persistent data and you might have um, updated a field or something you know that kind of migrated your data to new format and so you have to consider those things as well you know like mm-hmm. you should be able to now revert back to your previous format or uh, some way to go back to older snapshot for example than OTA i mean this perhaps would never be part of your you know first line of defense in an OTA you know uh, revert strategy so mm-hmm. yeah so it sounds very um, simplistic from uh, the thought that you know you tell me i have two options if one goes wrong i use the other one you know i i feel very safe thinking about it but when it comes down to implementation the complexity is just make it worse and uh, that has been my learning as well and i think the uh, other thing that has kind of happened over past few years is that now your bootloaders have become network aware as well mm-hmm. so you know in a worse situation let's say you know you break the device or whatever but or by you know doing an update your your bootloaders or you could configure your bootloaders to speak to network and get a recovery image or something and then you know uh, reinitialize the device that way so there are um, there are techniques nowadays you know that people can deploy at a bootloader level as well so in the past perhaps you know that was not the case and they always thought that you know having uh, what if i go offline and you know so there should be a automatic mechanism for the device to switch to the other partition and things like that so but yeah i think there is perhaps you know there still are valid use cases in the marketplace today for you know flip flop mechanisms um, at the added complexity yeah so yeah i think uh, we we plan to look into few others for example uh, i'm really interested in os3 uh, as a update mechanism for a couple of reasons right one is it's atomic in nature and so which means that you can't break your device so easily and uh, and the delta updates is excites me a little bit because i think um, transferring full image to the device you know is something that costs you network bandwidth as well as you need a mechanism to store it on your device and in many cases it may not be possible for you to store because you know the yeah, especially with the cellular connected devices you know you just can't afford to do full image updates very often so right mm-hmm. so uh, um so we we will uh, you know effectively look into um, these solutions we already have our updater it's integrated uh, today so uh, if somebody checks out your distro today they can use our existing yo updater and port it to you know their devices or it usually uh, will be Uh, simple enough i believe but uh, i guess more to come i uh, that's uh, what i would put forward here and um, see what all we can include whether you know we want to kind of use something like sw update and os3 uh, both of them made available or just one of them perhaps you know will time will tell yes so um what do you think about um, developer story around uh, your distro with developer story i mean not only the open embedded developers but people who are users of open embedded want to build a product so in general like you know things like feeds and all so how do we kind of address that need yeah that's that's a good question the developer needs are a little different than the deployment needs 
like you mentioned before, you know, we typically don't deploy package updates in the field. You know, we typically just update an application or, or the full image. Mm-hmm. But for developers, you know, people who want to try different technologies, you know, it, it seems like the feeds experience more like Debian or Ubuntu, you know, where you can mm-hmm. just install anything. Is that kind of what you were thinking about? or? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. And then so I th- the, other, the other thing that's really nice about an embedded is the SDK development uh, mm-hmm. or generation. And that, that has worked out really nice for people who don't want to do full, full OE builds, you know, that you can build an SDK for them and then they can build applications outside of OE for development. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think uh, to add to that, like there were, there, there was a gaping hole in there in terms of process where, um, you know, the traditional SDK or application SDKs were, Basically, you have to follow a different uh, process to develop the apps. But then if you have to integrate them back into your platform, then, you know, that, that was not kind of, it was more or less decoupled process at that point. So either you wrote uh, recipes into Open Embedded and then, you know, that way you integrated back in or, you know, so you provided an image and some like manual scripts, things like that, where a developer could copy what he built onto the target and run it. Um, but I think recently there has been a new feature basically to address that need and it's called the uh, extensible SDK. And I think that's also a good uh, development in the open embedded community, um, which uh, basically is um, providing you a captured bitbake and other metadata plus the pre-builds, which we call shared state, uh, into a single installer. Um, what that gives you is a good starting point, and it has everything built in. Now, it also has the static tool chain in the traditional speak. So if you had your applications, you can still use it in that sense. So nothing changes for you. But if you were to use the extensible features, then you could basically create image yourself as an application developer. And uh, there is a tool called DevTool. And if you kind of use DevTool, then you can also add a very easy step to add your packages into this modified image and you can flash the image yourself. So you really don't have to depend on someone to provide you a system image. And then you can you know, have a more custom way of adding your application on top. So I think that's also a good development um, in the community from developers yeah. as well. Yeah, we'll definitely have to talk more about that because I think that will be a, a very useful yeah, forward. I think so. It, uh, you have a point there. I think we should definitely expand on that one and perhaps talk in detail about the whole, like how the workflow looks like and what different aspects of tooling are. And mm-hmm. so, um, so, yeah, I think moving forward, I think we have like a very interesting way of uh, interesting take on the reproducibility and and um, uh, managing your builds. So uh, I think we have like container technologies in there that uh, we rely on and we use day to day basis. So would you want to talk about like how we do that? Yeah, yeah, that's that's an interesting story. I had a customer years back that was trying to OJS application into their root FS, and and by the way, I, I don't recommend deploying Node.js in any shape, form in an embedded Linux image. So <laughs> we can talk about that some other time. There's, there's better alternatives today. And maybe back then there wasn't. But So it was an old version of Open Embedded that was 
you know, they were kind of stuck with for various reasons. Um, it was an, it was an obsolete old system on module that needed a certain version of QT for a certain version of a Linux kernel. Anyway, we're stuck with this ancient version of open embedded and this customer, their build machine due to IT restrictions was restricted to a certain OS version. And, um, and we, we needed to build some things that weren't building. Kind of in desperation, I looked around for some ways to, to change the host environment mm-hmm. to another distribution, you know, while still building on their, on their build machine there. And I, I tried Docker and it actually worked quite well. Mm-hmm. And since then, we've, we've provided a, a, uh, a Docker container set up with all the host dependencies needed to build, build a open embedded. And then this Docker container, we, we've set up some wrappers around Bitbake so that when you type Bitbake, it actually runs Bitbake inside the container and maps your build directory from your host system into the container, runs the build in the container, and then comes back. So the nice thing is you can do all your editing you know, with the, the tools you have set up and everything. And um, when you run Bitbake, it, it just transparently does that in the container and you don't even really know the containers running and and the big advantage of that is these embedded linux systems sometimes have product life cycles of five or ten years and open embedded typically you know if you're using an old version of open embedded or yocto typically it won't build on a on say a a linux distribution that's three years newer for various reasons Mm -hmm. so if you can have a snapshot in time in a in a docker container then you can easily maintain this product with an older version of open embedded over five or 10 years. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's been a very, very nice bit of tooling, kind of isolating your host build computer from the actual open embedded build process. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a really good point. So essentially, um, I can relate to it a little bit now. Um, I use Arch for my, you know, as a daily driver. And uh, recently, Arch updated uh, their file utility to uh, support seccomp. And seccomp doesn't go well with sudo, which is a key technology in open embedded from, you know, for creating the fake root kind of environment. So I started seeing this weird build errors on Arch Linux and, you know, it took me a while to dig it down and find out what's going on. And it seems that, you know, the tool is not happy that, um, so, so sudo basically captures certain syscalls and the, that breaks the contract with, I think, um, with the OS and it just basically dies down. Uh, so, and the fact is that when somebody is calling, you know, the file program on your system, then it segfaults. Now, you know, if I were to build on Arch Linux, and I'm pretty sure that same thing will flow into, you know, other distributions sooner or later, because Arch is always at the bleeding edge of the packages. But with your distro, I did not see this issue because, um, and it occurred to me, oh, uh, you know, it's so seamless that I forgot that it's running in a, in a container environment. I said, I'm building on Arch Linux, both things. It works, it doesn't work. What's going on? So I was trying mm-hmm. to build the uh, Yocto reference distro for some reason. And, and then it took me uh, a, you know, a bit of understanding this. I see. So I've realized that I've forgotten about, like, you know, we are building, <laughs> building in Docker. So it's, it's quite seamless. And as you said, uh, you know, I still call BitPay something and, you know, underneath it invokes Docker 
and does all the builds in the docker and then comes back to you so um so i don't feel like anything that's running on my system you know i don't have to like start additional things on my end to enable uh, any specifics for the docker containers so yeah yeah that's that's very convenient and bitbake and, and docker fires up instantly and runs bitbake almost as fast as if you were running it locally on your computer and the other the other thing this Docker wrapper enables is it makes it easier for anybody on the team to build, to run a build on their computer because, mm-hmm. again, it isolates host dependencies and you don't have to do a lot of support and helping developers, you know, set up their machines or debug weird problems. Mm-hmm. So it, it really takes a lot of load off of the system software developers, you know, and reducing mm-hmm. their support load if you have a little, little bit larger team or multiple people are trying to do open embedded development. Yeah, yeah, it's a very good point. Um, I see that there is, um, you know, a point there where you have different versions of release that you're doing, the, you know, your products on. And in some cases, you're migrating your product from, say, a, you know, Yocto 2.2 or 2.3, what have you, to Yocto 3.0. Now, you have your own layers, but your infrastructure is still the same. So it might be that you are using Ubuntu 12.04 and it was working fine for your you know, previous instance of Yocto. Now, 12, Ubuntu 12.04 might no, no longer be buildable or you know, might be usable for you for these ones and vice versa. So all these combinations and permutations with your uh, IT infra and you know, the various versions of Yocto in flight makes it a lot more complex. Either you have to have like different VMs or different machines to build different versions of Yocto. Yeah. Or, you know, so this quickly grows into a matrix that you can't maintain anymore. Right, right, exactly. Yeah. So I think um, I have seen a few issues with um, Docker release to say, you know, essentially I think those are perhaps not Docker-related issues. It's just that I think, uh, you know, there are, how like open embedded and bitbake opens file handles and keeps them hot and things like that so i do see some packaging errors uh, occasionally my you know uh, fix has been to clean the package and rebuild it and that works fine but uh, it doesn't sound like it's a uh, docker issue but yeah i think the it's not a core feature supported by after project for example so you know the, all the support uh, it doesn't get tested on their auto builders and things like that. So um, um, there was a few projects that called crops, for example, was trying to use Docker underneath, um, mm-hmm. um, but the project kind of stalled. So, um, but yeah, so I think uh, those are like little niggles you might see once in a while, but I guess, you know, because I'm consider myself as power user and, um, you know, I maybe like not many people will see those kind of use cases, which I see. But, but certainly, I think uh, for the benefits that it brings, I think those are really, really small. Yeah, I, I agree. There are some hassles. I mean, like one is we haven't figured out how to work with a host user ID other than 1000, which is kind of a pain. But most people, you know, they have a Linux workstation and their user ID 1000. So that's okay. But yeah, you, you look at kind of the, the very small issues and compared to the problems it solves, you know, it, there's no comparison in my mind. Mm-hmm. And again, it's a, it's a very simple Docker container. You know, it, it's simply a container 
and a few lines in a bash script to wrap it and wrap mm-hmm. bit bake and that's it you know there's no other tooling involved yep. so you know it's it's we feel it's a nice it provides a, a lot of value um, in a very simple way that's not hard to understand and it, mm-hmm. it solves solves some real problems yeah yeah so um other issue um that I know I kind of saw recently is that um I was trying to run p tests so you know that's another thing we will cover in later episodes but p tests don't run under docker because they need some root permissions and things like that mm-hmm. uh but yeah. Uh, yeah so the easy workaround for now is that I think we can say you know docker underscore repo equals none and off you go <laughs> yeah right. so so it's not that hard to not use docker as well um, if you have to not use it so yeah um, it's completely optional right yeah yeah so i think um that's uh, that's a very good story for us um uh, to move on to some of our documentation initiatives that we have and i think um, you know there's enough documentation out there available in yocto project uh, mega manual and so on and so forth but we have uh, some unique viewpoint on our documentation that we are doing here and you know so i think that you know some of it is basically i would think that more templatized documentation where you get specific things to do than how it's done from that aspect so i guess you know it's more like providing documentation recipes than anything else what's your take on it because i think you've been doing most of it uh, and a very and a commendable job by the way so far <laughs> yeah i i guess i I kind of view documentation as as notes on how to do things so that you know 6 months down the road when I have to do it again I can I can quickly figure out how to do it without having to relearn it. Mm-hmm. And, and really the the envsetup.sh script is more just documentation than anything else, you know, the the functions mm-hmm. provide some some level of automation and convenience but in the end they're basically just a collection of commands that you would normally type out and um and I, I really look at them as documentation. You know, we, we could wrap all this stuff in a Python script or a, a Go binary or something like that. But then, you know, then that would just kind of hide what we're mm-hmm. actually doing. So that's that's why we stick with with Bash at the top level because it's the easiest to understand. Even a make file is obscures things quite a bit compared to just a Bash script. Yeah. So... Yeah, and then and then the documentation itself is more just on how to do how to do things that you need to do routinely need to do during the process of developing a product or using open embedded. So the you know the nitty gritty details are all in the Yocto documentation, which is very extensive and good. But you know just quickly finds how to do this. You know that's the type of documentation we're trying to provide. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think I read through the you know the. libc comparison that you're down there so i think that's very useful for someone like a architect or uh, you know in that role who's uh, basically coming up with initial recommendations on you know hey, what should i do in terms of setting up the basic design and i think uh, there is a good data in there that tells you about you know various choices if you make then you know mm-hmm. this is the potential savings in size <clears throat> that you might get for example and uh, i think that's a very practical documentation right there and a lot of people look for such data out there on the web and you know so more more than often there is less context to it because uh, people have published the data but there is no code 
uh, for someone to try it out. In this case, I find it very useful that if somebody goes in there, looks at and says, oh, I see. So this is the difference, checks out Yo and builds those uh, images and sees it for himself. Uh, that, you know, sure. so I think that's very uh, useful, uh, I think, for a lot of people from from ground up. So uh, any any more thoughts on, um, you know, what uh, you would like to see in documentation moving forward or, you know, what we would be adding in future? Yeah, I, I, I would like to do more platform documentation and then, um, you know, documentation on updaters. And, and I, I guess, yeah, just just things that we routinely do and and we, we try to take notes on it and those turn into documentation. Yeah. We, we hope to mm-hmm. hope to do a lot more of that. And, and certainly, you know, contributions are welcome. Our docs are currently just markdown files in the docs directory and our Git repo. So it's, it's really simple. Mm-hmm. We kind of started with that as the documentation kind of goes with the distribution repo so that, you know, if you have a project that's five years old, you know, the documentation is still with that, project versus like a separate documentation mm-hmm. system where the documentation may move forward, but you need a version of documentation that's five years back or something. So those are kind of some of the decisions we've made. Again, it keeps it very simple. Anybody can easily contribute uh, documentation because it's just markdown files. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's very um, strong point as well that, you know, documentation is with the code and I think that's how it has to be. And, um, you know, I'm, I like my markup myself as well, markdown as well. Um, mm-hmm. And, um, and I think setting up Hugo was very simple for me, whether it is, you know, uh, a Linux desktop or a Mac or anything. So it's uh, fairly simple to kind of add documentation there as well. Anything else uh, you would like to cover today? No, we're probably out of time. So, yeah, we appreciate this opportunity. And if anyone has thoughts or topics, we're certainly glad for suggestions. And hopefully in the near future, we'll we'll be able to interview some people who have contributed to Open Embedded. Yeah, Yeah, I think that's, um, you know, I would be very interested in that because, you know, it would be good to understand the thought process. uh, You know, the people who have been with the project from the very beginning had when they mm-hmm. started with it, you know, so it all goes to the root. And I think, you know, it's very interesting to bring that perspective out and then put it in front of our audience. Looking yes. forward to some of those. Right. Okay. Well, until next time, take care. Take care. Thank you. Yep. Thanks. Thanks.